0: Everybody. Welcome to New Consciousness Review. My name is Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Chef Barton Seaver. Barton is an influential voice in the culinary world because of his take on seafood and sustainability. He's one of the champions of the locavore movement, and he starred in a TV miniseries, In Search of Food, which focused on local farmers, chefs, and food specialists in New York, San Francisco, and Minneapolis. In his first book that we're going to be discussing today, Barton introduces an entirely new kind of casual cooking that features seafood that has not been overfished or harvested using destructive methods. His book is called For Cod and Country, Simple, Delicious, Sustainable Cooking, and I can tell you firsthand that it lives up to its name. Welcome, Barton Seaver.
1: Well, thank you so much, Miriam. It's a real pleasure to be here with you.
0: I'm just delighted to have received your book for review because I have been enjoying it immensely. In fact, it's the one cookbook that I keep on top of the counter instead of in my bookshelf. Oh, that's
1: nice to hear. Thanks.
0: Now, I understand from reading the book and from some background material that your philosophy is that food should be both healthful and bring you joy. That it should bring together family and build an understanding of our place within the global community. You gave such an evocative introduction to your book about your childhood around the family dinner table and and a memorable flounder meal off the Long Island coast that got you started. Mm. So tell tell us a bit about your background and what brought you into this specific niche.
1: Well, in fact, I uh, was born and raised in a very interesting multi-ethnic neighborhood called Mount Pleasant in Washington D.C., and it's sort of just a, a Noah's Ark of people. And it was an old, uh, an older neighborhood, and it's just filled with embassy workers, international, uh, foreign exchange students, uh, Latino community from nearly every Central American nation: Eritreans, Ethiopians, Koreans. And uh, my family, we were born and ra- I was born and raised here, and. You know, we would shop in two different ways. First, we'd go off to the, the, the grocery store once a week on Sundays and kind of bulk up. But we'd also spend a lot of time walking just a block or two up the street to all of these different ethnic markets and mm-hmm. buying what was fresh, buying what was interesting, buying what was neat or, or new. And my parents were both very intrepid cooks, uh, which was good because they were also very good cooks. And so the, the food was tasty. But uh, family dinner... Was an integral part of my upbringing, uh, a part of my family. In fact, where the members of my family coalesced and really became a group, and it was the act of cooking every night that really gave us that time together. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, you can imagine the little toe-hit boys, my brother and I, we'd be football out in the in the street uh, with all of our neighbors. You know in the waning hours of the afternoon light and, and then we'd be called home to dinner and my dad would have just gotten home from work and we'd be pressing out the moistened masa harina dough in a, in a taco press and then dry searing the, the tortillas in a, in a pan in a castile pan you know, and, and my brother and I just so rapturously and wondered what this thing that was so cool so new but yet literally represents eons of cultural history to the boys and girls that we had been playing with all afternoon And so we really began to see, or or I sort of grew up with food as a a fluency and as a means to understand the people that were all around me. And, uh, you know, it was that fluency, which when I dropped out of college and was looking for some structure in my life, which allowed me to very easily jump into the restaurant community. Mm -hmm. While I wasn't necessarily a good cook. I was fluent in food. so (laughs) I, I got it. And it was just easy for me to start in on it. And I really began to, to enjoy it. And what I loved about it was the communion of food. You know, how food and its production really brings us together. And I found great joy and solace in that. And, uh, and in fact, that's what drove my, um, drove my career for many years in restaurants. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's sort of what For Cod and Country is. My book is sort of a reclamation to me as, as a you know, moving away from the role of a chef to really the role of the cook, and reclaiming uh, those memories, those experiences of how food really brings people together. And uh, well, I had great that, fun writing it.
0: There's so much nostalgia that you that description um, you associate kind of gathering around the big family dinner table, particularly with ethnic communities, um, still, because I have the feeling that a lot of that experience has been lost in the modern family where everybody is working so hard and fast food has become the order of the day. So kudos to you for campaigning to bring that spirit back.
1: Well, thanks. And I think even beyond that, uh, you know, Travels around the country and in, in the world, uh, I, I work as a, a National Geographic Fellow, uh, and I spend a lot of time exploring how food is, is, a, is a window of exploration to, to how we relate to each other, our communities, and our natural world. And I have really began to see you know, some of the externalities of the convenience foods movement. Uh, and I'm not necessarily bashing it, because a lot of good has come with convenience foods. Uh, you know, women have been freed up from their traditional role, uh, in order to join the workplace, you know, to really, uh, seek and to find that equality, uh, you know, and God bless it. You know, I mean, there, there are some very good cultural things, which have come from a little bit more independence from the farm, more independence from the kitchen. Uh, but there are also some very negative things. And mm-hmm. in my experience, once we removed the culture from agriculture, once we removed American culture away from these small-town communities where everybody chipped in for everyone else's benefit, uh, we've really professionalized the role of the neighbor in our society and also increasingly so of the family. You know, the, yes. the hungry, the poor, the sick, the aging, the homeless, uh, they were all taken care of by the family or by the extended community within you know, in our recent past. And now we have largely a nonprofit industry which has sprung up to care for those needs uh, you know we kind now, of a
0: depersonalization
1: uh, or a professionalization yeah and 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 I think we're now doing a lot of the same thing with food uh, and if you look at the burden that we place upon our school food systems to portray and, and become the role of the family to incubate those values of not only nutrition but manners of uh, interactive skills, uh, relationship skills. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, we're really mm-hmm. getting away from what I feel is, is the fundamental purpose of eating, which is to sustain us spiritually, communally, uh, in a family sense, but in an individual sense, also in a health sense. Uh, mm-hmm. It's time that we sort of vigorously research the values that we've left behind, and try and incorporate uh, the best of those values into our modern system. And most of that begins with with sitting around the table.
0: Right. And you you take it um, to the level of the the market and actually purchasing your food, Um, and you've been uh, supporting the locavore movement, buying local and sustainable foods. So your, your, your current cookbook focuses on sustainable seafood, which is a movement I hadn't really heard of until I picked up your book. Tell us about that.
1: Well, in, in our very recent history, uh, probably within the past five decades or so, we have, uh, we've frankly eaten too many fish. Uh, and fisheries really represents a very difficult uh, understanding. Because it's the last wild food that we eat on a massive scale, uh, mm-hmm. and it's really hunting of sorts. And um, unfortunately, we have eaten more fish than than we should have. We have discarded unnecessarily fish that we should have eaten, uh, and in doing so, we've damaged the natural ecosystems that support us. Um, and unfortunately, the sustainable se- well, the sustainable seafood movement, just to stay on this tack for a second, is about uh... realizing how we can continue to fish uh... continue to support uh... hard-working fishing communities how can we can continue to partake of the healthful and delicious bounty of the oceans in a way that uh... ensures that those ecosystems will stay intact uh... for generations for years to come and uh... it's really very exciting movement uh... but it's one that's it's very complicated and unfortunately, fishermen tend to get the bear the brunt of, of the of the criticism here. Uh, and it's easy to do so, because well, it's the fishermen that took the fish out of the ocean. But none of us are absent to blame here, because uh, we we all ate the fish. We're the ones mm-hmm. supporting uh, fisheries through our dollars, through our consumption. And so it's really uh, not a burden, I would say, but really an opportunity that we have as consumers to support hard-working american jobs to support good nutrition and uh... to ultimately get back to what really drives dinner which is delicious uh... It's a, it's a, you know it's a language we all speak
0: <laughs> so <laughs> Um, You focus on uh, making informed choices among the fish that you uh, demand in the market. So what varieties should we be looking for that um, are not endangered? Uh, And, and, you know, what ones are endangered and how can we make substitutes? I know that you include a lot of that information in your book, but give us a general uh, overview.
1: Well, I'll tell you the general overview is to start off by saying it's super complicated and it's always changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Fisheries are an incredibly resilient force. And so uh, what I can tell you today might not be accurate six months from now. Uh, it might have gotten worse. It might have gotten a lot better. Um, so as sort of a, a, a first salvo here, I would check with the Blue Ocean Institute or with the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Both organizations run a fantastic uh, little wallet guide program, which is uh, a simple listing of species in both in green, yellow, and red categories mm-hmm. and While I think it's a, a bit oversimplified it 's a great first step there's things like uh, you know sardines, um, some forms of tilapia that are farmed uh, domestically. You have uh, you know, some of the Alaskan salmon. You have Dungeness crab. I mean, have some of the great iconic species of our, of our country that are, are really doing very well and really should be eaten uh, with respect in moderation, but we should eat them. We should take mm-hmm. part in their incredibly delicious, moist, you know, sensual texture of that soft Dungeness with that slight toothsome bite just at the end and that salty, briny, sweet flavor. Woo! Mix that with just a, you know, a little bit of olive oil and some dill. Throw it on top as a garnish and some, some, you know, some hot, sweet butternut squash soup, lightly perfumed with garlic and then boiled down in just uh, its own juices. Woo! You know, talk about a great meal. You know, that's an opportunity right there. Not only to support fishermen, but to get your family actually to sit down to the table and say, Whoa! But also oh. to inject great nutrition into, into our daily lives. Um, oh wow! Well, you're making me
0: hungry, Barton. We're, we're going to have <laughs> well, to. <that's> the purpose. <laughs> we're going to have to take a little break. So uh, <laughs>
2: All right, I'll, I'll calm down. Slurp up I'll your cool saliva.
0: <laughs> slurp up your saliva and hang on, and we'll be right back with our guest, Barton Siever. And we're back with Barton Siever discussing his book, For Cod and Country. Um, there is no denying Barton's absolute passion for his subject. <laughs> Tell me, do you, think, do you think that the species that we have been decimating can make a comeback if we change our buying habits?
1: I do. Uh, as I said a little bit earlier, fisheries are incredibly, or not fisheries, but uh, fish stocks, fish species are incredibly resilient. And there's many examples of true restoration that's happened Uh, One example that's ongoing is is one of the true iconic species. In fact, the the species that could be argued uh, led to the founding of this country, which is cod uh, off the Mm -hmm. Atlantic coast here from the Gulf of Maine to the George's Bank off of Cape Cod, Block Island, uh, represented one of the the biggest global fisheries in terms of volume uh, and one of the most profitable fisheries for hundreds of years. Uh, Then in the late 80s, early 90s, the cod literally – they were gone. We had fished them nearly out of existence. Uh, moratoriums that were economically very damaging uh, were put in place. Uh, you know, Cod fishermen uh, who have, were following fifth, sixth generation line, lineages in working towns like Gloucester were all of a sudden forced out of work. Um, and the writing had been on the wall for many years as cod uh, fishery collapsed and, and we watched it happen. We knew it was happening that we couldn't get it in our heads to fix it. And now Mm -hmm. after this moratoriums, after some very strong management principles were put in place, we're beginning to see the fruits of that effort. Uh, The fishing communities of of New England are beginning to see profit again, uh, are beginning Mm -hmm. to see an opportunity to engage new generations in the fishing lifestyle. And these are, this is great. Is cod fully reco- restored, is it recovered? I would say not. We're probably around 20% of the original biomass, uh, of the original amount that was once there. But I think it's absolutely essential that we co-evolve sustainable economies with sustainable management. Mm-hmm. And so there's some great men and women out there working. Uh, one of the group is the Cape Cod Commercial Hook Fishermen Association. And they're doing incredible work—literally hand jigging with lines tied to their fingers for these cod, on little day boats catching small quantities, taking incredible care of this fish, delivering it to the docks in such pristine quality you—you you couldn't even believe it. And they're selling. So it there's no
0: wastage.
1: Top. There's no waste. Uh, it's incredibly well cared for. They're selling it for mm-hmm. top dollar, so they're catching fewer fish but making more money.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they're really uh, incentivizing a whole industry to really respect and renew sort of the love affair and, and uh, opportunity that is the cod fishery. And as these guys are out there making money, the cod are under the water actually slowly restoring themselves. And it's a great story of how the compelling narrative of conservation, I think, is really a story of responsible consumption. It's about what we well, do. And so these guys are proving that we can eat our way to success.
0: This is kind of a fishy parallel to what's happened with the organic farming movement. Now, an, another aspect of conservation um, that you recommend in your book is that people get into the habit of eating smaller portions and pairing them with um, what you have uh, in your book are some absolutely yummy vegetable accompaniments. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
0: and and there, there's a, a health dividend in this as well. So tell us about that.
1: Well, the fastest way to save the oceans is, in fact, not to eat sustainable seafood, but it's mm. to eat a lot more vegetables with small, enjoyable, adequate portions of sustainable protein. And this goes the same for meat as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and your doctor has probably told you that the, the fastest way to sustain yourself is to eat more vegetables. And if you, you look at your grocery bill, the fastest way to sustain your savings account is to eat more vegetables, too. And what I argue is that the best way to make a meal really delicious is to put more vegetables on there. I mean, all the <laughs> taste, those, 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 the flavors, the seasonality, the direct relationship, the colors. I mean, it's just a, a beck and call to the table, and it's beautiful. And, and, in fact, as a chef, most chefs would probably tell you this, what makes cooking really fun it's not the bold font, you know, fourteen Atlantic uh, fourteen point font, Atlantic salmon. We're then with the eight point font, you know, regular type arid chokes and berjules, garlic confit, arugula salad, herbs. Mm. You know, anybody can get salmon. It's what the chef does with it. It's the it's the accompaniment, it's the, the backup, it's the chorus line that really makes it a memorable meal. And uh, I think we're beginning to learn as a culture to move away from that sort of center of the plate, protein-centric dialogue, to move more towards a diversified plate where we're getting our calories a little bit from crispy, crunchy, broiled broccoli so that it has texture and just melts in your mouth underneath that slightly charred external uh, you know, casing to it, uh, just thrown under the broiler for a few minutes maybe some roasted sweet potatoes uh, enlivened with a cilantro-almond pesto at once, both super aromatic but, but balancing the sweetness of the potato with that, that, that slight cool spice and slide of that, of that, uh, that pesto, you know, all with a, maybe a wild rice salad with little bits of cranberries in there and almond slices. I mean, this is, whoa, that's a great <laughs> meal. Oh, and by the way, maybe I'll put a, a small piece of, uh, of uh, broiled bluefish on top just to kind of round it out. But, hey, if you invited me over for dinner and gave me just those three vegetables, I'd leave a happy man.
0: (laughs) I have to say that um, I've been cooking for about a century, and uh, there are a lot of just plain cooking skills that I picked up from your book, so I was really impressed by that. Thanks. Uh, For example, brining.
1: uh Uh-huh. Well, I think a, a big part of, of eating well, uh, uh, 90% of good cooking is, is being a good shopper, is buying good ingredients, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to fish. There's no recipe tip, technique, or anything that I can tell you to do that's ever going to make up for a lousy piece of fish. So if you buy great fish, the purpose then is just to get out of the way of it, to get it to the table hot, cooked, ready to eat, mm, delicious. Delicious.
0: So what are your tips for selecting great fish?
1: Well, uh, I think the first thing to do is walk into a, you know, purchase your fish at a store where you have a fishmonger, somebody to talk to. And then the first thing to do is actually introduce yourself to that man or woman and say, hey, my name is Barton. What's your name? Nice to meet you. What do you got that's freshest? What do you got that's best today? What should I buy? Now that they know your name and you know theirs, they're probably more likely to steer you to something that they'd be proud of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as consumers, we have to be willing to diversify our demand a little bit. You know, if that person behind the counter says, oh, I just got these brilliant shimmering sheen. Look at this brilliant, uh, you know, mac. Wow. That, you know, beautiful silvered skin, you know, punctuated with these golden dots running down. Look at this flesh. It's nearly translucent in, it, in its freshness. Woo! And it's cheap, six ninety nine a pound. You should take this home. Oh, well, okay.
0: We've got to be
1: willing to say yes. Um,
0: oh. Well, what about frozen versus fresh fish?
1: Well, uh, frozen fish earned a, a very <laughs> bad place in our cultural uh, kind of lexicon here because a lot of unscrupulous fishmongers would have their fish at market for a couple of days and if If it didn't sell, before it went bad, they'd freeze it. And Mm -hmm. so it it really became, frozen fish came synonymous with with bad fish. But that has changed recently. Uh, The technology of freezing has has grown by leaps and bounds. And oftentimes uh, in major fisheries, such as Alaskan salmon, pollock, uh, some of the East Coast fisheries as well, the fish is, is caught, filleted, and frozen literally within hours of being harvested. And if you think of, of the word fresh and what it actually means is you know uh, deterioration of quality. Well, if it's frozen within just a few hours, that flavor, that freshness is locked in and can't go anywhere. And we're talking uh, deep freeze technologies where fish are being frozen at negative 120 degree temperatures. Uh, micro-misted in a a little dusting of of water, and it creates this protective ice film on the outside so that the proteins don't get damaged internally. And then there's also, not only is the quality better, but there's a waste factor which comes into this. You know, if you and your family shop uh, for food once a week, you can go down the frozen aisle and pick up some great, delicious, fresh out the water, uh, frozen sockeye salmon fillets from Alaska. And if uh, you're shopping on a Sunday afternoon, and well, it's Thursday, and you want fish, well, all you do is you take it out of the freezer that morning, open up the package, put a moist towel over it, and leave it in the refrigerator. By the time you get home from work, you're going to have all these beautiful fillets ready to cook as pristine as you can possibly buy. You know, talk about a great opportunity. Ooh, not only are you getting good product, but but you're also ensuring great quality. You're also ensuring value in making sure that it lasts.
0: Yeah. Well, I I used to fish for salmon in Scotland, and we used to freeze the fish whole. So it had its original mucus coating on it, and uh, by not cutting, you know, not gutting it, um, you don't introduce bacteria into the flesh, and it would keep for, you know, a a couple of years, actually.
1: But um, Frozen frozen is really um, not something to shy away from. You know, in the middle of winter... I grew up eating frozen vegetables, and, uh, you know, they tasted a lot better than the, the so-called quote-unquote fresh vegetables that they were at the grocery store at that time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I still have a soft spot in my heart for a bag of frozen corn niblets. Um, you know, I much prefer August corn around here in, in Washington, D.C. area when it's just, you know, whew, so super sweet and aromatic and, oh, what an incredible opportunity. But, well, come February, I'm still hungry still want to eat something so you know it's a frozen product is more and more becoming a really viable option
0: absolutely okay we're going to take another short break and then we'll be right back with our guest barton siever and we're back talking with barton siever about fish and his wonderful book For cod and country, Barton. What um, what is the difference between fresh and farmed, uh, wild and farmed fish? What would you recommend us to look for?
1: Oh, complicated question. Uh, You know, there's there's a a sentiment that's very popular that uh, was propagated a few years back that farmed fish is bad, Uh, and I'd like I'd like to. Say that that's not true. Uh, like everything in the world, there's good and there's bad, and reality is is always somewhere in between. Um, some farmed fish is highly detrimental and uh, should be avoided. Other farmed fish is is detrimental, but getting better, and we should, uh, as consumers, support that progress. Other farmed fish is absolutely golden, as as pristine and as sustainable as you can get. Uh, so to lump everything in terms of foreign fish under one category, good or bad, is, is really a false proposition. Uh, starting off with some of the very best things, you've got farm-raised shellfish, mussels, oysters, clams. Uh, I actually like to argue that it's it's our patriotic duty to eat as many of these as we can. That's the only <laughs> thing I recommend overconsumption of. Uh, over on the West Coast, you've got such luminaries as the, the Taylor Shellfish Company. Out of uh, Washington State, which is doing great things, great great oysters, a whole variety of them. You got the Hog Island Oyster Company down outside of uh, San Francisco in Tamales Bay. Uh, Not only are these great reflections of a real local flavor, uh, they're really as 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 sustainable as you can get, and they're heart healthy omega threes. They're delicious. You know, it's it's not not too hard I have to twist an arm in order to get somebody to eat a half dozen oysters and you know, share a six-pack of beer with a bottle of Tabasco, you know. <laughs> Come on, that's the kind of environmentalism I can get into. <laughs> um, and then there's things uh, like farmed salmon, which have a long way to go. Uh, it's a great source of protein, it's a great source of omega-3s. However, the industry, uh, by and large, has some, some very real issues that it has to address. Um, and the difference between farmed and wild is, uh, well, farmed fish actually represents about 50% of the seafood that we eat in the world today. Uh, and so it's, it's rapidly gaining ground in terms of market uh, acceptance and, and market availability. Um, but a lot of farmed fish really feeds into the, the preordained notion that we have about seafood as a commodity. You know, too often we walk into a store with a recipe in hand and say, I need salmon. Well, that's great. Somewhere between April and November when the Alaskan salmon season is in full bore and you've got kings and pinks, chums and sockeyes and, and, and cohos all running up the streams and in various times and fresh delivered to your local grocery store. And wow, it's such a, a seasonal delight and something you can really get behind and eat with its own unique distinctive flavor. Whoo! Very cool. So what happens in February when you walk in and say, I need salmon? Well, what we're doing as consumers is we're forcing not only retailers, but the entire seafood production uh, system, we're forcing them to have salmon available to us at all times. When, in fact, in February, it might be best to have Dungeness crab or the mackerels that are running just offshore. Maybe it's the, uh, the San Diego tuna fishery that's just opened up. Um, there's a whole lot of wild mm. products that are available throughout many different seasons, uh, and we need to begin to partake in that. Uh, seafood is a seasonal product—a time that each product has a time when it's best, most freshest, most economical, and most delicious—and then begin to substitute with some of the commodities that come out of the farm-raised, which are, you know, delicious, domestically raised cat which is such a perfect stand-in for, for many of the, uh, the white-fleshed species, such as snapper, bass, or grouper. Uh, you have tilapia. We have farm-raised clams, mussels, oysters. We have arctic char from the pristine, cold, clear waters of Iceland. You know, Some really neat things that are at market, readily available, and really represent an opportunity not only to eat well but to shop well and to uh, participate, I think, responsibly with our food system.
0: And I might just add that you have arranged your cookbook according to the season, so you give us a guide as to what to look for in its in its season.
1: Well yeah, done. And some of the seasonality of seafood betrays our calendar seasonality. For instance, uh, halibut and sablefish off the west coast—some uh, of the most popular species over there. Uh, And the season opens up in in May and lasts till about September, October, November, depending on quota. And so it goes from spring through summer and then a little bit into fall. And uh, so some of the recipes in the book are really defined seasonally more by the vegetable accompaniments that uh, go with them. Maybe the halibut is is wrapped in bacon and then seared and then tossed with uh, gently boiled beets and, and slowly roasted until all the flavors meld and you have this wonderful, earthy, rich smoky seductive dish with textures and colors Woo! or maybe uh, you know then, then it's <laughs> uh, I,
0: I just want to point out to the listener that i've tried quite a few recipes in your book and despite the fact that when you describe it you get transported um into realms of poetry uh the recipes are actually very easy to make i was astonished and the, the, the flavor dividend is incredible.
1: Well, thanks. Well, getting back to the idea of brining that we were speaking of the gas theft, um, you know, a great deal of my interpretation of cooking is making products not taste all the same or not combining so many flavors, but rather very carefully choosing flavors that really accentuate Uh, each other and really draw out the most of the few ingredients you have on the plate. And brining uh, is one technique, I think, to get the most out of the piece of fish that you've bought. Just a simple solution of a little bit of salt, a little bit of sugar, and a cup or two of water, and just let it sit for maybe anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour. And that salt, through osmosis, gently infuses all the way through the flesh, thus adding the appeal of moisture and without damaging the proteins. And so when you cook a piece of salmon that's been brined on a low, slow oven, it just comes out custard-like in texture and, and beautiful, moist, without any of that fat exuded. So you keep all of the nutrients. You keep all of that flavor. You still spent $10.99 a pound for that salmon or whatever you did, but hey, guess what? You got more salmon flavor out of the salmon. Mm. Ooh, okay. Well, that's what brining's all about. And then you use just a little bit of acid, maybe some some white wine vinegar, uh, roasted, you know, a little bit of lemon juice on top. That acid really uh, accentuates and highlights natural flavors, thus drawing out more nuance of that salmon flavor. And again, you still paid the same amount of money, but whoa, you're getting more flavor. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's what brining's all about.
0: Yeah. How many of us have had a piece of hard? dry salmon served up to us and and wondered, what is all this hype about?
1: Yeah. Well, the other thing about uh, a lot of the recipes in the books, you're you're absolutely right. These are all written in my home kitchen. These are for the home cook. Uh, And many of them are designed with a busy life and busy lifestyle in mind or entertaining. Uh And just as I said, with that salmon dish, maybe you take a a piece of coho salmon my favorite of the five species of wild Alaskan salmon, wild salmon, and you, you brine it and put it in, a, in an oven at 275 degrees with maybe just a touch drizzle of olive oil over the top. And you cook it. It might take 45 minutes to cook all the way through. And so it's warmed, warm throughout the center. Uh, but if you look at it, it won't look traditionally cooked, but it will be. But it just won't have turned that, that odd kind of pink, weird, orange color It'll still be bright and vibrant in its color. And, hey, if you cook it for 35 minutes, great. If you cook it for 55 minutes, great. Guess what? It's still moist. It's still flavorful and flaky and soft and meaty with all of that texture. And mm. But if you got a little too busy or were enjoying that glass of wine with your friends as they were sharing stories with you in the kitchen and, oh, oh, God, I forgot the salmon. Well, you take it out and you've got a leeway of maybe 20 minutes before it actually becomes maybe overdone. Well, doesn't that sound good to those of us who entertain? <laughs> rather Absolutely. Than cooking it at 450 degrees, where it goes from underdone to overdone in maybe the course of three minutes. You know, you've got to mm. be standing there, you know, no friends, don't talk to me. Well, in this case, you're really enjoying the process of cooking and, and letting and working with the heat rather than against it. And, uh, you know, cooking is meant to make our lives better.
0: Absolutely. I, I love the the technique where you just kind of um, sear it a little bit on the bottom and then you finish it in the oven. That was a revelation to me.
1: Yeah, that's a, another super easy way to, uh, you know, I use oven, uh, low, slow oven, rarely above 300, 325 degrees. But if you want that crispy skin, you know, use a, a deep a uh, heavy cast steel pan, something like a Le Creuset or a Staub pan that uh, really holds the heat, or even a Lodge cast iron pan. And uh, you get it, get it hot, throw in a little bit of butter or olive oil or whatever it is, and just put your filet skin side down right on there, and then don't move it. You know, cooking is actually, scientifically, it's the transfer of heat into food. And so I love watching cooking shows where these chefs are constantly digging, they're Spatula into the pan, constantly tossing it, throwing it this side to that side, you know. It makes for good TV, but it makes for bad cooking because where's (laughs) the heat? Well, it's somewhere between the pan and the airspace, uh, you know, between that and the zucchini. Uh, Let it sit. Take your time. You know, you're not cooking. The heat is cooking. Um, And just, you know, put this fillet in the pan and let it sit. Let it develop that slow, savory crunch to the outside then For the whole pan without ever moving the fish or turning it over into a low oven and allow it to slowly absorb that heat throughout the filet, thus keeping all of those natural juices, all of that flavor, all of that fat held within that piece of fish. And you know, plain, simple, good fish thrown into the oven, cooked with a little bit of love and care, and you know, you're, you're going to find yourself eating more fish more often.
0: <laughs> well, when we come back from our break, uh, we'll conclude with our interview but um we have a lot more things to discuss so stay tuned and we'll be right back and we're back with our guest barton siever talking about his book for cod and country barton you have a wonderful section in your book that describes many different spices you have a very um i don't know juicy approach to using spices
1: yeah, I, you know, I spent uh, some time, I, I accidentally uh, ended up living in Morocco for a while, uh, which is a whole nother radio interview, so I won't get into that term, accidentally. <laughs> but, uh, I spent my days wandering around the hazy, smoky, lazy afternoons of the Medinas, these old trading grounds that are, you know, just perched over with these, these beams and these, uh, you know, tarts and tents to keep out the sun, and, and they lock in these smoky, hazy smells of the spices, and it's just as romantic as you can imagine, and just as exotic, too. And so I've, I've really grown a, a true, true, deep love affair with spices, but not unnecessarily so, and there's a few of them that really match perfectly with seafood that, For a little bit of investment, you're talking maybe five bucks over the course of a year, uh, you know, for a couple of cans of some of these things, and uh, just a little bit of them to inflect, infuse, enhance the natural flavors of seafood really go a long way, not only to making your cooking better, but making your cooking simpler. And Mm -hmm. I'm talking about things like uh, probably my favorite one is pimenton, which is a smoked Spanish paprika. And it's available in specialty stores or online now, and uh, especially the sweet smoked paprika. It's just such a rustic, robust, but yet sort of secondary flavor. And uh, I like to just gently uh, season uh, a piece of fish for the grill with a little bit of salt, a touch of sugar, maybe a little bit of the uh, of cinnamon, and some of the smoked paprika in there. And what it does is it helps to really accentuate that smoked flavor coming off a grill. Or in the middle of February, if you're throwing a piece of fish under the broiler, it allows you to transport yourself to warmer climes and, and you know feel the gentle breezes of summer blowing over you as you stand over a grill and that smoky, seductive, rustic flavor. Ooh, you know, And it's this beautiful, deep, rusty red color. And it's just what a fun, wonderful way to enhance your meal. Uh, another spice that I really love is mace. It's the, uh, the lacy outer hull of nutmeg, and it's usually available ground. And it's very popular in northern European cuisine. But again, it just adds such a wonderful backdrop for the natural iron richness of salmon to play off of, for something like halibut with its nuanced, uh, very subtle flavors to really uh, kind of stand up against. And in so challenging the flavor of mace, actually becomes more of its own flavor, And just, ooh, you know, what a great way to cook, and it's fun and easy. And it allows you to take out a lot of the cream or the butter, uh, you know, the kind of the crutches that we often rely on to make things tasty.
0: Mm. Wow. Well, coming back full circle to the notion of um, fisheries and sustainability, you know, there's a lot of concern particularly among pregnant women and so on, of ingesting fish that might um, have absorbed a lot of mercury. Um, What would be our wise choices in that respect?
1: Well, this debate rages on, uh, and it's coming from both the fishing industry uh, and the medical community alike. Um, Bottom line is I've never seen a study anywhere or ever heard anybody saying that mercury is good for you. So (laughs) I will be the first to tell your listeners, do not chew on the silver end of the thermometer. It's not worth it. But there's a huge amount of information coming about about the the benefits of omega-3s, from the cardioprotective benefits as we age, uh, some some new information coming about uh, how it might also prevent uh, other uh, neurological disorders, uh, as we age to the, you know, wonderful benefits on cranial and neurological development as a child. Um, and unfortunately, I think women have largely been scared off of fish. Um, and I think it's probably maybe more dangerous to not eat fish than it is to, to eat fish uh, because... There's so many species that are completely negligible in mercury, that are super high in omega-3s and uh, are also highly sustainable that we really should be consuming much more of. And I'm talking about anchovies, sardines, uh, cans of pink salmon, cans of uh, skipjack tuna, which is no mercury in it and is by and large uh, sustainable or getting better. Uh, as we speak, more progress every day uh, to things like farm-raised trout, um, mm-hmm. clams, mussels, oysters. While you wouldn't want to eat them raw when you're pregnant, uh, certainly cooked is is fine. Mm-hmm. And um, the you know, unfortunately, a lot of nutrition is 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 uh, kind of sensationalized these days. Yeah. Either do or don't eat way too much or eat none of it at all. And. Uh, you know i think that most people innately know this but nutrition is a nuanced balanced approach to to diet we need a little bit of everything you know, we need yeah. lots of vegetables but we need to incorporate seafood in our diets especially when we're pregnant nursing um you know it's a it's a great opportunity and uh the you know the debate about mercury i i will say you know, i'm not a doctor i'm not going to take a specific stand on this but i will say that that seafood is widely accessible in canned form uh, which is accessible it's it's economical it's available in every 7-eleven corner bodega and walmart in america you know this is not elitist food it's health food sure available everywhere Mm. and you know talk about a pink salmon melt open up a can of salmon uh mix it with a little bit of mayonnaise maybe some chopped dill or, or a little bit of dried dill if you've got it around the house Throw it on a piece of whole grain bread, pumpernickel bread, some good cheddar cheese. Throw it under the broiler. Whoa, that's great nutrition right there, and it's cheap. You can feed a family for four. Your protein cost is maybe three fifty. Whoa, that's not elitist. And you're getting all <laughs> the omega threes. You're getting good, cheap, accessible, nutritious. Uh, you know, protein. It's a win-win. Plus, it's a very sustainable American product. So, um, the opportunities out there to really. Uh, to eat healthfully. And, uh, but the debate rages on, and it always will.
0: Yeah. Well, um, you've made uh, some interesting TV shows. Uh, I saw one of them. Um, it was not about your fishery um, focus, but it was about your local and sustainable focus. Um, what was this? It was a three part miniseries. What was it called?
1: It's called In Search of Food. And uh, it aired on the Ovation Network. And we're actually looking to do a few more of the episodes, I hope. Um, So it'll be a continuing narrative about uh, food communities and the people behind them. Mm -hmm. And what I've really found is that people in modern world have found something missing, whether in their individual lives, in their communities, within their health. um, And they went in search of it, using food as their means, to discover what was what was missing, what was lacking in their lives, and uh, how they could, uh, kind of be, uh, re-engage that in their in their lives, and it's fascinating. You know, in, we were in Minneapolis and out in the outskirts of that town, you know, where agriculture has has long been the industry. It's in fact how they define their culture. So how do we how do we hold on to that legacy in a, a rapidly uh, advancing technological world. Uh, we went to New York City to find out how do, how do you feed an island you know, of 10 million people uh, in an environment that could never support that many mouths naturally. So what human systems do we have to overlay on ecological systems in order to make New York City possible? And mm-hmm. then uh, traveled over to San Francisco as well to discover what life is like in Utopia <laughs> you know, Of course you eat strawberries in season Because guess what, right after strawberry season You forget about them, why? Well because those apricots were just calling your name You could smell them, that gentle Almost subversive scent Calling from you, calling to you From across the aisle And then after the apricots are gone, well guess what It's those Matsumoto peaches Those varieties you've never heard of Just that, that boisterous scent that, that romantic, sweet Mouthwatering Experience, calling you, and then after peaches are gone, you oh, you got persimmons, you know, and so you live in a climate where you don't have to, you don't ever have to think about eating seasonally because you're just so drawn to the next thing. That um, Mm. you know, what is life like where everybody nearly cares about this stuff? And uh, it was three very different communities, three very different opportunities, but uh, but really each represented uh, kind of a universal concern that food. Is how we explore our world. It's how we relate to each other, our communities, and uh, by and large, I think it's it's our greatest opportunity um, to really heal the soul of our communities and to heal the soul of America and uh, to bring each other back to a table, to a common place, and that's um, that's the dinner table.
0: Tell us about your work with the National Geographic uh, Oceans Project. But-
1: Oh, man, i got the coolest job in the world. It's so so excellent. Also on natgeoseafood.com, your listeners will find a a unique and fun seafood selector guide that uh, National Geographic and I developed with our partners at the Center for Health and Global Environment at Harvard University Medical School, as well as the Blue Ocean Institute and the Environmental Defense Fund. And what it is is it a tool that allows people to choose different metrics by which they make their decisions. There are four filters. Uh, for 43 or so species that are commonly eaten, uh, and they include trophic level, or where the fish sit, in the marine food chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also includes, you can click on omega-3 information, toxicity information, or how much mercury uh, a certain fish has, and also the sustainability ranking provided by Blue Ocean Institute as to whether it's green, yellow, or red listed. And so it allows people to make informed decisions that suits lifestyle. Because some people are more interested in toxicity. Some people are mm-hmm. just chasing omega-3s. Others are interested in a very holistic view of sustainability. And uh, it allows people to to interact with seafood on a much more varied uh, basis.
0: Well, it sounds like an absolutely marvelous tool. And um, so that URL was natgeoseafood.com, is that correct? Yeah. For National N-A-T- Geographic? No.
1: Oh. Yep, natgeo seafood Uh huh.
0: Okay, and we'll we'll certainly um, uh, put a link to it on our website.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you.
0: I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review, and we've been speaking with Barton Seaver, the author of the fabulous cookbook for Cod and Country. You can learn more about Barton's work and events at Bartonseaver.org. That's B A R T O N. S-E-A-V-E-R dot org. And a reminder, that wonderful Seafood Decision Guide is on NatGeoSeafood.com, the Seafood Decision Guide, as well as his online series, CookWise. So now we're going to go to our musical interlude. Stay tuned. We're going to conclude our show with some great music on the track of the week. This week's track was selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. The PMA is a growing number of musicians who are using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. Their styles range from pop and rock to folk and jazz, all with positive messages designed to uplift, heal, or enlighten. This week we're featuring a song by Lisa Bell called Move On. After the song, I'll tell you where you can find out more about her music and more about the PMA. Enjoy the music! That was Move On by Lisa Bell from Boulder, Colorado. To find out more about Lisa's music, go to www.lisabellmusic.com, dot musiccom And to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that's our last show for this season. We'll be back in just a few weeks with a great new lineup of the most interesting and paradigm-shifting authors and filmmakers on the planet. You can learn more about all of our guests on ncreview.com. I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thanks for listening. Come back soon. Goodbye.